Good evening. Uh, thank you so much, Jack, and to uh, 5.15 for having us this evening. Um, I am going to start by talking about our book, How Many More Women, that was published in February in uh, the UK and in October in Australia. And uh, as Jack just said, I wrote it with my incredible co-author, which I, who I hope you can see on screen as well, uh, Jennifer Robinson. And I want to just start by talking a little bit about why we wrote the book and what's the problem that we're trying to combat in writing this book. In 2017, as many of you will know, um, a hashtag went viral, Me Too. And there was a cascade of allegations, accusations, experiences with women and girls speaking out about gender-based violence, sexual harassment, sexual abuse in lots of different contexts. Gender-based violence is, according to the United Nations, the most pervasive human rights violation in the world. And one in three women and girls uh, will suffer a form of gender-based violence, whether that be domestic abuse um, or some of the other forms of violence uh, that women and girls face, um, be it online, offline, in technologically mediated spaces. In international law, there's also a right to live a life that is free from gender-based violence. But that right, as we all know, is far from being respected, protected and fulfilled. And what we talk about in this book is, well, you know, how can we combat gender-based violence if we can't talk about it? In 2017, when the hashtag MeToo went viral after Tarana Burke started the campaign years before, Jen and I started to see in our practice the backlash um, against Me Too and against women and girls speaking out with these allegations and accusations. And what we started to see was just as there was a cascade of allegations, there was a cascade of lawsuits. This is what the UN Special Rapporteur has called uh, the weaponization of the law or gendered censorship with powerful industry figures using NDAs, privacy injunctions, or defamation claims in an attempt to silence these accusations and allegations. But it's not just powerful figures um, that have been able to use the law. In many of the cases that we talk about in the book, it is uh, people in all different circumstances of life and from all different countries. In 2019, in the UK, the Supreme Court held, heard a really important case called Stalker and Stalker. And Jen and I were instructed by uh, a human rights organization, Liberty, to intervene in the Supreme Court. So we work, worked together on that case. Um, the Supreme Court didn't hear us. And that's why we decided to write the book with all the arguments that we would make. But the case just showed um, one of the problems that we are seeing in our practice. In that case, it was a, a matrimonial couple. Um, they broke up and uh, Mrs. Stocker wrote on a Facebook wall that her ex-husband had tried to strangle her. He sued her in defamation. There's no legal aid for defamation. And uh, although the police were called and red marks were noted down, um, he argued in the court that that the idea of trying, that her words that he tried to strangle was defamatory. The judge used a dictionary and looked at the technical legal definition and he decided that his words meant that 
that he had tried to silence her and not to kill her, and therefore she was liable in defamation. This went to the Court of Appeal, and finally in the Supreme Court, she would win. But she faced seven years of litigations, high costs, a large amount of stress for going through this. And what is our right to free speech worth if we can't afford to protect it? What is going on in the balancing exercise between free speech and the right to reputation? Where is the other rights um, that exist in international law, such as uh, the right to be free from gender-based violence, a right to equality, and in school contexts, for example, or universities, a right to education. So these are some of the big arguments we make in the book. And we do this by telling a series of stories, by interviewing women and journalists and activists from around the world, including the spearhead of the Japanese Me Too movement, Shiori Ito, who was sued after speaking out with her allegation of sexual assault. That that went to the Supreme Court in Japan, where she eventually won. Um, we've also interviewed um, two incredible uh, feminist journalists in Colombia who are facing multiple uh, lawsuits um, for printing accusations um, uh, about a, a famous film director. And as Shiori said to us, this is different legal systems same problem. And we're going to hand over to Jen now uh, to talk about one of the cases that we talk about in the book. Thank you, Kana, and great to be here, everyone. I'm going to use my time to talk about two related high-profile defamation cases in the UK and the US. Uh, the US trial is one you will have seen. Uh, it attracted global media attention and billions of hits on, literally billions of hits on Instagram and TikTok. You couldn't have missed it unless you were living under a rock. I'm talking about the defamation cases that were taken by Johnny Depp against, uh, in relation to Amber Heard's allegations of domestic violence. Now, Depp first sued the Sun newspaper in the UK and lost. He then sued Amber personally in the US and he won. We highlight these cases in our book in a chapter entitled Her Truth on Trial Twice, not just because it was so high profile or because I had special insight into the case because I acted for Amber in the UK proceedings, but we highlight it because it provides an unprecedented comparative example of what happens when her truth goes on trial in defamation cases involving gender-based violence. And because it's a really important case study of how stereotypes about gender-based violence affect the approach of the media and society to women who make allegations and the role of social media in these cases. This is a case that everyone has an, seems to have an opinion on, Team Johnny or Team Amber and why. This is the question that I want you to ask yourself tonight and to challenge the assumptions you may have made and how you may have reached them. In our book, we identify three different types of defamation cases, and I'll outline them in respect to what happened in the Depp and Heard cases. Uh, the first is where you see the alleged perpetrator sue the newspaper for printing her story. And in that instance, uh, the woman has no agency over the proceedings. The newspaper could, and they do often, settle for commercial reasons. Uh, the implication being that they couldn't defend her truth uh, when, in fact, it's made for monetary reasons. She has no control over the proceedings uh, or how, and how or whether it will be defended. All she can do is provide evidence in support of the newspaper defending her allegations. And the case that Depp, the Depp, that Depp took against the son in the UK is an example of that. The second type of case is where the alleged perpetrator sues the woman for telling her story about his abuse. 
And in that instance, she she faced the cost and stress risk of the legal proceedings, being cross-examined by his lawyers in court and potential damages. And as Kainer explained, many women can't afford to defend these cases. This is, this is the case that Depp took against Amber personally in the US, seeking millions of dollars against her. Um, and is it a good, it is a really good example of it. The third type is where we see the per alleged perpetrator sue family and friends of the woman for speaking out in support of her and the allegations she's made against him. The, the cost burden then falls on them. And again, all the woman can do who has made the allegations is to give evidence to support their defence. So unusually, Amber faced two of these cases. But how did they come about? Amber did what society, victim we expect victims in society, or we say that they should do. Uh, she took her allegations to the court. It was in 2016 that she went to a court in California to obtain a restraining order against Depp on the basis of her allegations of domestic violence. Um, the judge in that case decided to grant, found that her allegations were sufficiently credible to grant that order. The matter was widely reported in the global media. She didn't want to speak publicly about the allegations and, and all she did to receive the restraining order was explain one, one recent incidence of domestic violence and said that there were many more examples but chose not to talk about them all. After she got the restraining order, she and Depp got a divorce and they settled the matter. She signed an NDA and that was the end of it. She didn't speak publicly about the allegations again. Now, this all took place pre-Me Too. So this is back in 2016, so before the Me Too movement kicked off. And really the matter sort of faded away into footnotes and glossy profiles about the two of them. Um, but after Me Too hit, commentators and newspaper journalists were starting to ask questions in the context of the commentary around Me Too. Why was it that Johnny Depp was still being cast in J.K. Rowling's franchise, for example, uh, when he, he had had a restraining order, a domestic violence restraining order taken out against him? Um, ultimately, that created sufficient noise that Depp then decided to sue the, the Sun newspaper in the United Kingdom for publishing an article which asked the question why J.K. Rowling, a supporter of Me Too and Time's Up, could cast a known quote-unquote wife-beater in her films. The Sun chose to defend that case on the basis of the truth defence. So that required that the Sun, that meant that the Sun had to bear the burden to prove Amber's allegations were true. Amber called me for advice about what she should do, and I had to explain to her that she was in a difficult predicament. There was always the risk if she chose not to give evidence that the Sun might choose to settle for commercial reasons and may, he would then go around saying look uh, she lied it was defamatory it's not true that that I hit her faced with that prospect she took the difficult decision to give evidence in the proceedings in the United Kingdom I worked with Amber for two years to prepare the evidence in that case and to support the son's legal team in defending the case in the lead up to that trial Amber faced a relentless PR campaign led by Depp's lawyer who claimed that her allegations were a hoax that she'd painted on her own bruises to falsely accuse him, that she was misrepresenting herself as a victim, which defrauded the real victims of the Me Too movement. Of course, her allegations were made long before the Me Too movement even kicked off. In the book, I write about my experience of that trial, the rape and death threats that Amber and I both received, as well as the misinformation I observed in social media during the course of the trial um, about what was happening in court. Now, many people forget this, but the British judge found that the son had proved, based on Amber's evidence, that Depp had been violent towards her on 12 of the pleaded incidents of domestic violence that were run by the son as part of their defence. 
And I encourage people to go and have a look at that judgment because it sets out the evidence in detail, including how Amber's uh, oral evidence was corroborated by medical records, contemporaneous recordings of conversations with Depp and text messages and photos of, of her injuries. In short, the judge believed her, just as I do, and I still do. And after that judgment, I thought, surely no one will doubt her now. We've got a, a long articulated judgment that was based on weeks of evidence before a distinguished British High Court judge. Um, but how wrong I was. Depp then sued Amber for defamation in the United States for millions of dollars over an op-ed that she wrote speaking uh, in her capacity as the ACLU Women's Rights Ambassador about why women who choose to speak out about their experiences of, of sexual and domestic violence deserve more support. She did not name him. She didn't speak about the detail of any of the alleged incidents. She merely talked about what it was like becoming a, a public figure associated with allegations of domestic violence. Uh, he still sued her for millions of dollars. And of course, that trial, so high profile as it was, um, he was successful in front of a jury. What was disappointing about that, and I, and I say this, and we write about it in detail as an observer, because I did not act for her in the US proceedings, uh, which she lost, but was to watch society's reaction. Well, one, watch how debt Depp's lawyers defended that case, running all the old stereotypes about gender-based violence. Why didn't she go to the police? No one else has made a public accusation against him, therefore it's not true. Um, she was doing it for fame or for money. Um, all these kinds of allegations that were made both in court and outside of it. But what was astonishing to me as an observer of that case was the, way, the social media, the public discussion in the media and on social media about the case all of the harmful tropes that we have jury directions about in criminal cases involving sexual and domestic violence that judges are trained about to, so that they don't buy into them when they reach their conclusions, that judges are required to give juries warnings about in criminal cases, playing out online with a jury who was not sequestered and was reading all of this stuff online. Everybody was reading it. I was having friends call me up saying they couldn't believe the the conversations and the fact that their kids, young children, were absorbing these gender-based violence tropes uh, online. She's a gold digger. She's lying. She made it up for fame and money. These, these tropes coming out of their kids' mouths. And so some of the takeaways that I think we wanted to um, point out in that case is that it's really interesting that a lot of people came to some conclusions about that case because of what they saw on social media and the role of social media in a reputation management context in a global information environment. It didn't seem to matter to anyone that she had proven this before a British court, the Sun newspaper had proved it before a British court. Um, people were making judgments about this based on social media videos. So I think we really need to start to think about what this means as a society and how far we need to go in terms of educating uh, those about this and the silencing impact of this case, because how many women will speak out about their experience of gender-based violence when they see what happened to Amber Heard? So uh, we encourage you to read our book and you can hear about it in much more detail there.